Disclaimer. This episode features strong language throughout. Incoming transmission. Welcome. 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 Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. I got to the point where I thought, okay, so there are these men inside the embassy who built the embassy, who work inside the embassy and are privy to classified information. And they are willing to sell out their country. They're willing to sell out the United States for a blowjob. I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this is True Spies. The Legal Attaché, part two, Lobsters in a Box. Not what you were expecting to hear from a true spy. Well, Kathy Stearman is no average true spy. In all the FBI's long history, she was one of the first women to become a legal attaché, or legat, the most senior agent the Bureau has stationed at US embassies around the world. As legat, Kathy spent much of her time putting away terrorists throughout Asia. But, like any organization, the FBI had its own internal challenges. So whilst the job was meant to be about fighting terror, on the home front, Kathy was more used to fighting sexism. When she joined the FBI in 1987, Kathy was one of only 600 female agents out of a total 10,000. Her first firearms instructor tampered with her gun to get her kicked out of basic training. It turned out he didn't think women were suited for the FBI. It never occurred to me that a man would be that blatant about his misogyny and about his dislike for women. And so I was very, very naive. Early on in her career, Kathy even coined a phrase for the behavior she witnessed by male agents. Fumu. Fuck up, move up. A lot of guys that I knew actually screwed up on the job. And in order for their bosses to get rid of them, they would promote them to another field office or a higher position. It goes without saying that the phrase did not apply to female agents. The second in command at her first field office was just an early, albeit prime, example of Fumu. He broke protocol to ask Kathy if she would date one of his friends, a fellow FBI agent who was going through a divorce. While in some settings this may have seemed like an innocent request, in the FBI it is against every rule, and the agent knew it, but he thought he spotted an opportunity with a young, inexperienced female agent. Afterwards, an older female agent tells Kathy she has two options, either report him or let the whole thing go. She goes, but here's the deal. If you do something about it and you report him to OPR, you will wear it, he won't. And she goes, what I mean by that is... Everyone will look at you as if you have a chip on your shoulder and he will always, always be the hero. He will always be the good guy. And so I didn't do anything. I did absolutely nothing. I didn't say anything. And a couple months later, he got promoted to another field office because he was caught having sex with his secretary in his FBI car in the FBI garage. Eventually border waiting to be promoted amongst the throng of less competent male agents, Kathy moved herself up. In 2006, 
she landed in New Delhi, India as Legat, the FBI's top representative in several countries across the subcontinent. The majority of her brief is consumed by the growing global terror threat, bombings in Malaysia, gun attacks in India, and a civil war raging towards its denouement in Sri Lanka. I knew that the LTT was going to target a crowd of people if they were going to target anything where I was. So that was just sort of my mindset every time I went down there. It's like, okay, you know, beware of buses, beware of bus stops, and stay away from crowds of people, and you should be okay. One of Kathy's investigations in Sri Lanka led to 13 members of the prescribed group, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elan, being sent down. But when she got back to India, Kathy was now asked to deal with another terrorism case. There was a subject, I think his name was Aftab Ansari. He had been the mastermind in kidnapping a very, very wealthy businessman in 2001, prior to 9-11, and he held this man for ransom. Ansari was an underworld figure with links to various prescribed terror groups. He had already been convicted as the mastermind behind the 2002 attacks on the American Cultural Center in Calcutta, which killed five people. He was already holed up in the presidential jail in Alipur, a suburb of Calcutta. But the FBI weren't done with him. Ansari was still being investigated, and for a very specific reason. Back in the 1990s, Ansari had met a man called Ahmed Omar Saeed Sheikh during a stretch in Tihar Prison, the largest prison complex in South Asia, a British citizen who had attended the London School of Economics. Sheikh left his comfortable existence behind to fight alongside Muslims in the Bosnian War. He then ended up in Afghanistan, running training camps for Al-Qaeda. The Times of London even described him as bin Laden's favoured son. While Sheikh was a fundamentalist focused on jihad, Ansari was a self-styled mafia don who would work with anyone, if the price was right. Ansari and Sheikh kept in touch upon their release. And soon enough, Ansari spotted an opportunity for a quick buck. He kidnapped the patriarch of one of India's largest shoe manufacturers. The ransom? Nearly $2 million in today's money. So, though he's been in prison for one crime, where there's big money involved, you've got to keep going. So that's why they continued with that investigation, even though he was already sentenced to death for killing five people at the American Center. It turns out that after the kidnapping, Ansari sent his old friend Ahmed Omar Saeed Sheikh some of the ransom. Sheikh then wired $100,000 of it directly to a man called Mohammed Atta, the leader of the 9-11 hijackers, and who was at the controls of United Airlines Flight 11 when it hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And that's why a kidnapping was being investigated as terrorism. Kathy and her team were the reason all this came to light. They tracked down phone calls Ansari had made to a house the businessman's family owned in the US, demanding the ransom payment. The FBI had established Ansari was behind the kidnapping. The Bureau's evidence was likely to be crucial in securing a conviction, a huge political and psychological win for both India and America. But here's the thing. For the phone records to be admissible in India, Kathy was going to have to testify in Indian court, something that no FBI officer had done before. Frantic negotiations ensued between the various arms of the US and Indian governments, 
with Cathy caught in the middle. If you're an American, especially an American diplomat, and the foreign country that you're in or working in asks you to testify, you have to basically get permission from the Department of Justice at the highest levels and the Department of State to make sure that what I am testifying to is actually both a crime in India and in the United States. And so there was a lot of papers and legal documents that had to be drawn up between not just the Department of Justice and the Department of State, but between the U.S. government and the Indian government in order to allow me to testify. Eventually, though, the U.S. agrees to Kathy testifying. The chance to convict someone even indirectly related to 9-11 was a real coup in the years following the biggest terrorist attack in history on U.S. soil. The Indian government was really surprised that the American government, the United States government, actually agreed to do this. I think they thought it was a long shot. And I had no idea that it was such a big deal because I just thought, I'm doing my job. You know, the Indian government asked me to testify. And if it is within my power to do so, especially on a terrorist investigation, I'll make it happen. And so I did. Kathy makes her way down to Calcutta to appear in the courtroom, opposite Ansari himself. But when she landed on the tarmac to meet her contact, a man called Mr. Gupta, he wasn't alone. There was a whole cadre of soldiers standing around with guns, and I thought, um, is there something going, you know, and I said to Mr. Gupta, I was like, is there something going on today, you know, that, I mean, I was just curious, I didn't think it had anything to do with me, and he said, well, Miss Kathy, you know, we have a problem. Splashed across the newspaper, Mr. Gupta shows Kathy a story about an FBI agent preparing to make history by testifying in an Indian court. Someone had talked. And unfortunately, it had already been my experience that my colleagues in the Indian government <laughs> liked to leak things to the paper about issues that we would talk about. And I had been yelled at by the ambassador numerous times because an investigation would end up on the front page of the paper. And I'm like, there is nothing I can do about the Indian government. Along with bringing an entire regiment with him, Mr. Gupta had moved the trial from the courtroom to a prison. Before they head there, though, Kathy has allowed some time to prepare at a local hotel. I got to the hotel and asked for a cup of tea and a newspaper. Kathy reads the headline out to herself. Legal history to be made today, FBI man to testify in Indian court. It had my name, but they didn't realize that Kathy was a female and not a male. To Kathy, it's a stroke of luck. And that's when I thought to myself, well, okay, when I get to the prison, they're going to be aiming at somebody else. Again, maybe some poor Western journalist is going to be the target. It's not going to be me because they think a man is going to arrive to testify. So even I had to laugh at it and go, well, well, at least they're not going to be looking at me. After a few hours, Kathy, Mr. Gupta and their traveling army make their way toward the prison. But the military entourage doesn't fill Kathy with confidence. The car that I was in was behind like a pickup truck, you know, so the, there were some soldiers and police officers, I guess, you know, mostly soldiers in the back of the truck. And they just looked totally bored. 
like, I don't know why I'm here. Yeah, I'm going to pick my nose for a while. I wish I had a cup of chai. And I'm sitting in this car behind them and I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, well, I hope one of them doesn't shoot me by accident because their guns are pointing right at the car that I'm riding in. The convoy meanders through the pockmarked streets of downtown Calcutta. Shoeless children run alongside, clamoring at the sight of real soldiers. The din of stirring pots and market traders envelops the motorcade. Slowly, the jungle of corrugated tin shacks thins out. Kathy spots the prison approaching in the distance, a dilapidated red brick palace, marksmen punctuating its crenellated towers. Moving past the gate, the convoy is met in the courtyard by a mob of photographers. Panicked, Mr. Gupta ushers Kathy inside. When I walked into that makeshift courtroom and I saw the terrorist defendant, he was in this cage. And Sari stares at Kathy, pressing his head in between the bars. Kathy stares back. Everything that I encountered was unexpected from the way the, the makeshift courtroom was set up to the fact that the terrorist was locked in a cage, like Hannibal Lecter, to all these attorneys sitting there in these black silk robes and, and white white wigs. Eventually, the clerk shouts for Kathy to take the stand. The judge turns to her and yells, Madam, please state your name. I don't know if he was doing it because he was hard of hearing or if he was trying to let everybody in the whole room hear his voice, but I jumped out of my skin. After asking her a few more questions, the judge bellows to Kathy to state her father's surname. And I told him, and then he said, well, are you married? I think, and I said, yes. And I think he was confused because how can I have my father's name and my name? It's the same name but yet I married. And he didn't understand that in America and a lot of other places, it turns out, women do not take their husband's names. The judge has another question for her though. He asks her, what is your religion? And I said, none. And you know, he stops and everybody has to confer with each other and all the little attorneys, you know, knock their heads together and they're confused. The judge asks Kathy again, what is your religion? And again, Kathy answers. It was like this hubbub broke out in the courtroom. Then everybody's looking at me like, what is wrong with this woman? After the initial problems, Kathy's testimony passes without a hitch. The evidence is damning and conclusive. Stepping off the stand, Kathy is surrounded by attorneys all in English-style courtroom attire, long black robes and white wigs. One of them, you know, reached out and he touched my arm and he said, Miss Kathy, your English is very good. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's my first language. Congratulating her further on her performance, the attorney walks with Kathy towards the exit. We passed by the cage where the terrorist was locked up. And I looked over and he he's looking through the bars He's sort of like the scene with Jack Nicholson where he's like trying to stick his head through some, some bars and he's looking really crazy. The terrorist sticks his arm out from the cage, beckoning Kathy over. He's like, madam, madam, come here. And I was like, yeah, I don't think so, Hannibal. And I just kept walking. But it was just a surreal experience. The next day, the Times of India splashes the trial on its front page again. Only this time, it's got its facts straight. 
The headline in the paper is, you know, Kathy Stearman, a female, age 45, made legal history in testifying in Indian court. Not everyone is impressed. Back in New Delhi, Kathy goes to one of her regular meetings with the US ambassador, her direct boss in the embassy. He was another in the long line of misogynistic colleagues Kathy grappled with on a daily basis. The ambassador had a history of screaming at her for just about anything FBI-related that ended up in the news. But given the success Kathy has had in Calcutta, this time he can't. And he just looked at me like he was bored with me that day. It's like, ugh, man, I can't yell at her today, so I just won't say anything to her. After a year of being legat, Kathy realized this sort of behavior was part of a pattern imitated by most of her male embassy colleagues. They simply couldn't get over a woman being the FBI's top representative at their station. During the majority of her stint as legat, she's the only woman out of 70 colleagues. But being a woman had some big advantages in Kathy's eyes, not least in avoiding honeypots. It's an issue, especially overseas, but it's also an issue in the United States because for those of us who work counterintelligence or espionage, that is what you're constantly looking for. Is someone going to try to befriend you? If you're a man, is is a woman going to try to develop a relationship with you so that they can get information from you? I mean, everyone has seen it in the movies. Everyone's seen it on TV shows. But unfortunately, it happens a lot, a lot more than you think, more even than on the TV shows. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's Journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed, 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. After a two-year stint in India, Kathy became legat at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, one of the most sensitive diplomatic missions across the globe. During languages training some five years before, she'd spent over two years studying Mandarin. She was a perfect fit. But in China, Kathy discovered the problem of honeypots was even more intense. China is a high threat post, meaning that the Chinese government is adamantly trying to gather intelligence on the United States, the United States government. 
Anybody within the embassy who had any type of intelligence or was privy to any intelligence, they were going to try to recruit that person. And one of the best ways they had to recruit men in the embassy was to uh, send out honeypots. Honeypots. Typically, young, beautiful, seemingly innocent women who try to strike up relationships with male agents. I saw it time after time after time. There were plenty of guys who would develop relationships with women that they shouldn't have. But in a place like China, especially overseas in a high threat post, where you get briefings all the time, don't do this, don't do this. Do not develop relationships with young, gorgeous women because they're not there for your body. Even back in 2008, relations between the US and China were testy, fraught. The latter were already almost blatantly bugging US embassy staff's apartments. Kathy was followed conspicuously by a man dressed in a neat black suit wherever she went. And sure enough, the Chinese government did find a flaw in American intelligence security. I got to the point where I thought, okay, so there are these men inside the embassy who built the embassy, who work inside the embassy and are privy to classified information. And they are willing to sell out their country. They're willing to sell out the United States for a blowjob. Kathy helped set up a program that required all staff to report sexual liaisons with foreign nationals. Each person then had to have a face-to-face -face interview explaining what had happened determine what intelligence exactly the Chinese were after and what the agent had divulged. And I actually had guys say, but you know what? It was the best blowjob I ever had. Like, congratulations, you know, you just given classified information to a woman for a blowjob. I don't know how that figures in your head, but okay. One particular high-profile agent was eventually busted during the middle of a meeting with a honeypot on his desk. After a brief ticking off from the person employed to deal with these matters, however, the man was kept in post. The State Department had intervened. The agent's skills were too valuable to lose. There are some U.S. officials who their job is deemed so important that, well, we can't fire them, we can't let them go, we have to let them keep their job, even though they've compromised themselves. And I used to fight against that because my feeling is once you've compromised yourself, and once you have shown the intelligence community that you have the propensity to be that vulnerable to a foreign government, you need to go. You need to go back to the United States and you need to be removed from a position where you have access to classified information. Kathy sensed that the male portion of the intelligence community was circling wagons, protecting their own. It really just changed my perception about how I viewed men. And it's not that I hated men, I don't. I love men, I have a wonderful husband. But I just started to think, okay, so that's it. Every man has a price. Again and again throughout her career, Kathy sees the boys stick together and hang her out to dry. One final event will push her to the brink and lead her to leaving the job she's always wanted. Whenever you are the legal attaché at an embassy, you are basically the senior person for the entire Department of Justice, not just the FBI, but you are the senior represented for the Department of Justice. And when I was in China, the Attorney General had planned a trip to China. The U.S. Attorney General, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of the Federal Government, seventh in line to the presidency. Kathy is in charge of organizing his trip. 
people don't understand that when you see two individuals on TV and they're having this nice little conversation in front of a fireplace, there's a lot of work that goes behind that. And it starts months in advance. And part of that preparation is their security. Because when someone as high level as the attorney general goes to a place like China, their security is paramount. Kathy gets to work planning every detail of the trip alongside both Chinese officials and extra FBI security personnel, flown in especially. I thought we had planned for every contingency, and as luck would have it, there's always something that you just don't think about. You just don't think it's going to happen. And the reason things go wrong is because human nature is human nature, and humans are very flawed. The Attorney General William Holder lands in Beijing with his own extensive security detail. This was standard procedure. By the time Kathy arrives at the hotel booked out for the trip, though, she can see a problem. Holder's personal security team have cordoned off the hotel he's staying at. Posted across the wall next to their command post are pictures of all personnel they should know and, in certain circumstances, allow entry. Neither Kathy's face nor any of her team are on the wall. Kathy tries to explain that many of her team needed close contact with the Attorney General at certain points of the trip, particularly her hand-picked translator. But there's no response. The team simply ignores her. The security guys were very arrogant. Eventually, the Attorney General is due to attend his most significant meeting of the trip, a sit-down with a minister reputed to be the third most powerful man in China. So you can imagine the security detail involved in this meeting in this building. The meeting goes well. It's what happens next, as the delegation is leaving, when the problems start. We all came out of the room and were headed to the elevators because after that meeting, we were going to this absolutely beautiful renovated temple where the Chinese were going to hold an official lunch for the Attorney General. So I'm standing several feet away from the elevator and I hear this commotion, like a body slamming against the wall and and people yelling. Kathy runs over to see what's going on. I saw the interpreter being slammed against the wall. His suit jacket was torn. It was half hanging off his body. And the elevator doors were closing. And I was like, what in the world is going on? In the elevator are the attorney general and the Chinese minister. After witnessing the whole thing, the elevator doors close on them. Inside, they are alone with security, but no translator. Neither speaks the other's language. I thought, okay, I'm going to work this out. We're going to figure this out. I've got to find out actually what happened before I make any decisions. So I'm getting ready to go into the room where lunch is going to be. And two of the minister's assistants came up to me and said, what happened in front of the minister was unacceptable. It was embarrassing and he wants an official apology. What Kathy knows, though, is that official apologies are hugely political. A seemingly minor event threatens to erupt into a full-blown diplomatic standoff between the world's two great powers, all on Kathy's watch. An official apology in the diplomatic world can take many forms. And it could be a landmine, and you could just blow up right along with it. An investigation gets underway. Everyone involved is interviewed for their version of events, the Attorney General's detail, to a man. Pin all the blame on Kathy. It caused a big ruckus. I had to have the interpreter replaced. 
And what happened at the end of that whole debacle was the attorney general and that security detail, they were going to have me removed from my position as legat because of something they did wrong. And the FBI agents forwarded to the embassy weeks before. They side with Holder's team too. They even send Kathy a message to say that it wasn't her fault, but they can't go against the attorney general's detail. They weren't willing to step forward and say, hey, let's support her. We No, we have to stick with the guys. But help comes from an unusual quarter. Ambassador Huntsman came to my rescue and he said, you're not going to be removed. What happened is not your fault. He actually called Director Mueller directly and I didn't get removed. The investigation continues and the result is no less unsavory to Kathy. The security detail didn't get removed either. So there you have it. Without the help of uh, the ambassador and Director Mueller, I would have been removed for something I didn't do that the guys knew that I didn't do. A few months after the incident, FBI Director Mueller himself visits Beijing. You probably heard of Mueller. He was the guy tasked with investigating Russian interference in Donald Trump's 2016 election win, an investigation which expanded into examining whether Trump was personally responsible for an obstruction of justice. Robert Mueller is, um, he's a very serious man. He's very fair and I respect him very much, but he's very serious. You only talk to him when he talks to you and there's no chit chat. At the end of his visit, Kathy escorts Mueller back to the airport alone. At one point, Mueller leans into Kathy and says quietly, can I ask you a question? Kathy replies. Well, of course, sir, the director of the FBI, of course you can ask me a question. I said, well, of course, sir, absolutely. He takes a moment, then he asks, have you ever thought that you couldn't do your job because you were a woman? I was flabbergasted. How would you interpret that question? Kathy has to compose herself momentarily. Of all the things he could have asked me, she thought. Then she wondered, should I lie to him or tell the truth? And I thought, you know what? Now I'm going to tell him the truth. And I looked at him and I said, sir, everywhere I have worked for the most part, they have all treated me like a queen, which is the truth. They never treated me differently because I was a woman. I said, as a matter of fact, they treated me like a queen. They gave me everything I asked of them if it was in their power to give it. But then Kathy gets to what she really wants to say and what Director Mueller really wants to know. And I said, frankly, I have experienced more discrimination and I've had more problems with the men that I've worked with in the FBI than I ever experienced overseas. And he didn't say anything for a few seconds. He sort of turned away and looked out the window and then he, he was kind of quiet. And I said, and frankly, Director Muller, you, you really need to know that. And he looked at me and he said, you're right, I did. I did need to know that. That's when I knew that it's time for me to go. And I wonder if I was ever actually a real part of this organization. In the last few months of her time as Legat, Kathy remembers a story one of her first CBI contacts told her upon arrival in New Delhi some five years ago. They said, Kathy, we, we have a joke for you. And of course, game for it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, tell me your joke. And I could tell from the look on their face that they were so excited to tell this joke, which I'm sure they had told a thousand times before. Beneath a beaming grin, the CBI agent says, in India, there are a lot of animals trafficked around in boxes. But did you know that when you put lobsters in a box without a lid on it, they still won't get out. And I said, really? And why is that? The agent replies, because when one lobster tries to climb out, 
the others always pull him back down. But I realized that it's the same. That's human nature. And I, sometimes I felt like that lobster myself, especially when it came to the attorney general's visit, because I felt like I had reached a goal in my career as a legal attache, which is what I had always dreamed of. And I studied Chinese for two and a half years and China was my focus. And I, I finally got to be the, le the legat in China. And I felt like what happened with the attorney general incident was is my own colleagues not supporting me, not respecting the position that I held as a woman. And um, I kind of felt like that lobster at that moment, being pulled back into the box. After years of grappling with terrorism, honeypots, and even her own colleagues, Kathy went home. Despite it all though, Kathy still has a love for the FBI. It's funny, I've had conversations with retired female agents since then, and a lot of them, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to go there. They don't, they're, they're just like, well, you know what? It's over, it happened. What's the point in talking about it? Move on. And that's not how I feel though. I really and truly want young women to look at the FBI as a career, but I want them to know the good and I want them to know the bad. I want them to know what they're getting into. Because when I first went in, I had no expectation that a firearms instructor would treat me the way he did. And I made it through, but I want other young women to make it through as well. You can read more of Kathy's story in her book, It's Not About the Gun, Lessons from My Global Career as a Female FBI Agent. I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this has been my final transmission. True Spies will return next week with a new operative in charge, Sophia DiMartino. We'll be on the trail of the most infamous terrorist the world has ever known, Osama bin Laden. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs>